Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 51. It's titled, Is Deflation Coming? In order to understand deflation, which is a general decline in prices, we have to get to the beginning of economics, the very, very start. In The Sound of Music, Maria, in the musical, begins teaching Captain Von Trapp's children how to sing with these words. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. In order to understand economics, we have to change the lyrics a little bit. Let's start in the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC. With economics, you begin with GDP. GDP, GDP. The basis of economics is GDP. GDP, GDP. GDP measures a nation's output. Probably won't ever sing again on the show, but you'll never forget. GDP is the basis. It measures a nation's output, output in terms of goods and services. It's the value of all the goods and services produced by a country during a given period, including the value of cars manufactured, food harvested, houses built, students taught at school, meals served at restaurants, and the hundreds of thousands of other items manufactured and services provided in a given country. Now, it's important to recognize GDP doesn't measure how many things are produced, but the value produced in terms of dollars or in another currency. So producing one high dollar volume item can have the same GDP impact as producing 10 lower dollar value items. So what causes GDP to grow over time? For that, let's look at a simple example. If you ran a bakery and got up early each day to bake loaves of bread to sell, what would it take to increase production from 20 loaves to 25, assuming you were already working your hardest? You could employ a helper, or you could increase your efficiency by investing in time-saving equipment, such as a bigger oven or a mixer, or by finding a way to work smarter, perhaps by improving your dough rolling technique. In other words, the bakery output increases if the population of bakers increases or if baker productivity increases due to technology improvements or improved baking techniques. The same principle applies to the overall economy. A nation's output increases over the long term due to both worker population growth and increased productivity as each worker is able to produce more output because of improved technology or technique. And so when you look at over time in the world, the economy grows for those two reasons. The population 
grows and workers become become more productive. So the global economy has grown 52 out of the past 53 years. The only exception was during the global recession of 2008. When the output then, the dollar value or value in a local currency of goods and services produced, when that shrinks over several quarters, that is called a recession. Why would a nation businesses reduce their output? Well, they would do so if they think they're not going to be able to sell as many. If the baker feels like she's not going to be able to sell 25 loaves of bread, she can do two things. She can make only 20 loaves and sell them for the same price, or she could continue to make 25 loaves and lower the price. The terms of the impact on the economy is measured by GDP, it would be the same. Fewer loaves at the same price could be that have the same GDP impact as more the same amount of lo- loaves at the lower price. Now, if other producers and retailers also decide to lower the prices because they sense less demand, that is where you can get into a situation of falling prices. Because then, if consumers might hold off on buying things because they believe prices will fall further and you can get into a deflationary spiral. Now, there is a force in the economy that influences both GDP growth and the rate of inflation or deflation. And that force is debt. The baker could borrow money to buy that bigger oven to boost her productivity. If she doesn't borrow the money, what's her other choice? Well, she can save her profits over time and then have the money to purchase the bigger oven to improve productivity. But by borrowing money, she's able to accelerate a future purchase into the present. And so when a nation's households and businesses increase their debt level, that means their purchasing power increases, their ability to to buy things. And it also means because banks, the primary lender, create the money out of thin air, if we've talked about in earlier shows, the money supply increases as debt is, is issued. And so you got two things. The debt increases the purchasing power. It increases the money supply. That purchasing power allows households and businesses to buy that output, and that sends signals to the businesses to to produce more output and services. If we get into a situation where there is so much borrowing that has taken place that the level of purchasing power has just accelerated beyond the capacity, the capacity of businesses to produce Then you get a situation where inflation picks up because you have only a limited amount of capacity. And if purchasing power is increased and the supply of money is increasing because of higher debt levels, then you can get inflation. Conversely, it comes a time when businesses and households might be afraid to continue borrowing or spending. In other words, they want to pay down their debt. And in order to pay down their debt, they have to stop some of their spending and take that income and pay down debt. Now, that can lead to a situation 
uh, of falling prices if the demand for output has increased or decreased to such a level that businesses begin to lower prices in order to try to stoke demand, and then you can get deflation. So there are always inflationary forces in the economy, and there are deflationary forces. And that really has a lot to do with debt, because in a period of deleveraging, of paying down debt, that can, that is really a headwind for an economy and can really cause deflation. There's an aspect of GDP that can be very confusing for people. GDP is a measure of the dollar value of a nation's output, the value of goods and services produced. But when government agency measure GDP, they do an estimate every quarter. They don't directly measure output. They use proxies. They can calculate GDP based on what was spent by households, by businesses, by government, what was invested in new property, plant, and equipment. They look at change in inventories. They look at exports and imports. And based on what was spent, they estimate what the value of that output is. The other way they can calculate GDP is they look at income of all those various entities, household, businesses, etc. Because in an economy, the income always has to equate to what was spent. But GDP is a measure of the output. And as we saw, the debt influences that because the debt, as household and businesses borrow it, they accelerate future spending into the present, and that spending sends signals. So every dollar we spend sends a signal to businesses. So there's this dance between the output produced and whether businesses think they can sell that output and the consumers, the households and businesses, what they want to spend. Do they want to spend and buy that output? And that that constant dance, that constant leveraging up and deleveraging influences the growth in GDP, and it can also influence the rate of inflation and deflation. One reason in the U.S. the recovery has not been robust since the the bottom of the recession, so early, I guess mid-2009, it was the official end of the recession. One reason the recovery has not been as robust is U.S. private sector has been deleveraging. There's some data that I want to share with you. It's from the Federal Reserve in the Department of Commerce, and it was compiled by Ned Davis, and they use other sources. And they wanted to look at the level of private domestic non-financial debt. So this would be debt of households and non-financial businesses as a percent of gross domestic product. So as a, as a percent of the overall size of the economy. So what have debt levels been? It peaked in 2008 in the U.S. at 170%. It has now fallen through year-end, December 31st, 2014, to 144%. And so it, it has the debt. There has been a deleveraging now, so that has sort of been a headwind to economic growth. There have been other countries in a deleveraging mode. The UK, debt to GDP peaked at 200% in 2009. It's now down, at least through 930 of last year, down to 163%. Germany peaked in 2005 at 133%, and they have since paid down their debt to its 108% of GDP. 
Spain has also been in a deleveraging mode. Japan, debt to GDP peaked in 1998. Now they're at 169% through 930s. It's been somewhat steady debt to GDP. Again, this is private sector debt to GDP the last few years. But you look at that, since 1998, they have been paying down debt. That's one reason there's been these deflationary forces and Japan has suffered through periods of deflation because of that. Now, the offset to this this deleveraging has been countries that have been willing to continue to lever up. The question is, is deflation coming? One reason deflation has not reared its ugly head globally, there's, there's countries that are experiencing some deflation now, and there are countries experiencing inflation. But global deflation has been kept at bay because overall, global private non-financial debt as a percent of GDP has continued to rise. It peaked at 150% in 2009. It then dipped, and then it's continued to rise since 2012 or 2012. Now it's up to 148%. And when I say global or world GDP, this would be This is, again, data compiled by Ned Davis, the top 21 largest countries in the world as measured by GDP. So we've mentioned U.S. is deleveraging, Germany, U.K. is deleveraging. Who's leveraging up? Well, Canada is definitely leveraging up. They are now at 197% of debt to GDP. When we talked about housing bubbles a few episodes ago, Canada is one of the countries experiencing housing bubble. China is another country that is leveraging up. Their private non-financial debt as a percent of GDP is now at 190%. So it has continued to accelerate. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. 
I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Now, here's an interesting fact about debt to GDP. I've given examples of how as households and businesses borrow, that can accelerate economic growth because it pushes future spending into the present and it sends signals to businesses to produce more output because there are customers to buy that output. But at some point, the debt gets too large and then the households and businesses have to pull back in order to reduce their spending to pay off debt. There's a statistic that shows I've given you some debt-to-GDP statistics. The higher the debt-to-GDP, and again, let's look at global private non-financial debt, when that to GDP, when that has been above 131%, so 131% of GDP and above, the nominal GDP growth rate for the world has been, has averaged just under 6% a year. When it's been below 99%, so private non-financial debt at a percent of GDP, 99% or below, nominal growth for GDP has been 12%. So there's been much faster economic growth with lower debt levels. That pattern is consistent across all countries. And when I first looked at that, I thought, well, that that intuitively makes sense to the extent that if debt levels get too high, households and businesses have to pull back, they have to spend less so they'll be produce more output. And, and so that would be an argument against too high debt levels. When businesses take out debt, what you really want to have happen is debt is used to make investments to increase productivity. And if debt is used to increase productivity and the productivity boosts GDP, then debt GDP levels shouldn't necessarily increase. So it isn't the absolute level of the debt that makes a difference. It's what it is it relative to debt to GDP. And that's the same thing that we talked about when we talked about country or federal debt. It's not the absolute size of the federal debt. It's the size of the federal debt relative to the overall economy or gross domestic product. So the higher the debt levels, the higher, higher the private sector non-financial debt as a percent of GDP, the higher it is, the lower the economic growth. And when it's lower, economies have grown faster. But it isn't quite that clear cut because over time, debt levels have increased, but there are those other factors that contribute to GDP growth. Population. Population growth, the the higher the population growth, the more the GDP growth. And there is something that has incurred at the same time debt balances have been going up, private sector debt balances going up, world population growth has slowed. Back in the mid-60s, this is according to UN data, world population grew at 2% per year. And there's been a steady decline ever since. Currently, it's 1.1% a year. And so the amount of growth each year in terms of population has been cut in half. And by 2050, it's supposed to be growing at 0.5% a year. And so cut in half again. 
Slower population growth means less workers able to produce output, so means slower economic growth over time. And so that phenomena, that slower population growth, has occurred at the same time that debt levels have increased. So that's certainly, they both influence it. The debt levels increase. Yeah, I do believe higher debt levels do contribute to lower economic growth, but just because you, you lack the flexibility, but also it has occurred as population growth has slowed and that has contributed to lower GDP growth. What's interesting is as we look over the next 35 years or so, some countries are, will be shrinking in terms of their population growth. Examples of those that are actually going to shrink include Italy, Sweden, China, Switzerland, Greece, Hong Kong, Portugal, Russia, Taiwan, South Korea, Germany, Hungary, Japan, Czech Republic, and Poland. Overall, the, the, the global population is supposed to increase 30% between now and 2050. Those, that's a lot of countries that have a shrinking, expected to have a shrinking population, and that will definitely be a headwind to their economic growth. We can contrast those countries that are expected, the overall growth from 2014 to 2050, that will, those, these are the countries that will grow greater than 25%. This is based on estimates. The U.S., Mexico, Australia, Ireland, India, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Egypt, in Philippines. Philippines is expected to grow at 60%. India, developing country, is going to be growing much faster than China. India eventually will be the largest economy in the world. So let's answer the question, is deflation coming? First off, there are countries experiencing deflation right now. If we look at year-over-year inflation trends or price trends, There are 31 countries with stagnating prices or that are experiencing deflation. So year over year, the the worst in terms of falling prices is Greece. Their overall prices fell in terms of the basket of goods that were used to calculate inflation fell 1.9%. 35 countries around the world are still showing inflation. The highest inflation in the world is 68.5% year over year inflation in Venezuela, Ukraine, year-over-year, 46%. Russia, year-over-year inflation, 17%. So you have countries still experiencing inflation. You have countries experiencing deflation. Overall, inflation trends have been muted because of the 50% drop in oil prices. The U.S. is a great example of this. CPI, Consumer Price Index, year-over-year increased 0% through February. The mean or the average going back to 1965 is a 4.2% annual increase. The median is 3.4%. So that, that, that top line level, 0% growth, it is determined primarily because of the fall in oil prices. The commodities contribution to that CPI growth was a negative 3.8%. So commodity prices fell 3.8% in terms of their contribution to CPI. Core CPI, excluding energy and food, grew at 1.7%. So certainly muted inflation, but not overwhelming deflation across the globe because debt levels continue to increase, and that is a tailwind for inflation. You would need complete global deleveraging to really get into deflationary forces across the globe. 
And you would also really need global population decrease. And so those, and you're not, we're going to see overall increase. Now, it does vary by countries. Countries with, with, that are going to have a population drop are more likely to have deflationary pressures. You definitely see that in Japan because you have all these manufacturers producing output, but if there's less people to buy that output, they're going to want to probably, instead of necessarily cutting capacity, often the first response is to cut prices, and that puts some downward pressure. But long-term, at least as, as I see it, I don't see deflationary pressures, but you could definitely see it country by country. The other influence of deflationary pressures is currency. For example, Japan right now is doing everything they can to encourage inflation by weakening the yen. That means the price of imports will go up and they want inflation. But as the yen weakens, that means the the Korean won is strengthening. I think it's the won is strengthening. That means their exports are not as cost competitive. Country, or companies like Samsung have frozen wages because their profits are being hit because of the strength of the currency. You freeze wages, that causes essentially employees to, to, to not be able to, to, there's downward wage pressure, right? After inflation, we, the real wages in, will have decreased, they're less likely to buy things, Manufacturers might drop prices. And so you can get deflation in countries where the economy or where the, the currency is strengthening. That puts deflationary pressure. U.S. is another example. Because we import so much here in the U.S. with a 15% appreciation in the dollar, that means imports from China are cheaper. That, that flows through prices, downward pressure in prices, and that provides a deflationary headwind. Doesn't mean we're necessarily going to experience deflation. And and there's this huge fear on deflation that is just terrible. The type of deflation you worry about is the type that causes individuals to not want to buy because they believe prices are going to fall further. But we experience deflation all the time. I own a MacBook Air 2011, great computer, Four years old, I paid $1,100 for it. Now they're coming out with a new MacBook, and I'm very tempted to buy one. But if I would go buy that similar MacBook Air that's available now, it's a better machine, but it would cost about $999, so $1,000. It's $100 cheaper after four years. That is some deflationary pressure, and it's not stopping me from buying them. So just because prices are dropping... That does not mean that individuals will stop spending. We've seen that in Spain. Spain is experiencing deflation, yet I believe retail sales are up 15% year over year. And so there's a heavy fear of deflation. Economists fear it. But unless it's global in nature and it's starting to change behavior, that's where it becomes a risk, mainly because with deflation, a prolonged period of deflation makes it very difficult to pay off debts because your real income is dropping, yet the, the inflation-adjusted debt is actually growing. That's episode 51. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide, and I'll email those show notes to you weekly for free. That's also in that insider's guide where I'm answering listener 
questions and providing other valuable content. Thanks to all of those of you who have left reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. I appreciate the, the feedback. If you have any questions, please email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. And if you would like to explore the topics we cover in this weekly show in more depth, you can do so by becoming a member of my premium website. It's called the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. That's where we're, we're taking these topics but going deeper. By doing so in the weekly Money for the Rest of Us Plus episode, we do it in the weekly audio lessons and the video course. The current video course is How to Invest in Bonds, and we're discussing the ins and outs of bond investing. And finally, Hub members are using the Hub to understand current market conditions. So they're not investing based on emotion. They're investing based on what is going on now and adjusting their exposure to risk assets such as stocks based on what's going on, current conditions for the economy, based on current valuations, and based on market internals such as momentum and sentiment. You can get information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I'm simply providing general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.